Welcome back. Just a quick reminder that I'm working remotely from a hotel room for another week or so while my home is under construction, so the sound quality of this episode may not be the greatest. But the show must go on, and so, while it's a little late, today I'll be reading the Chief Justice's 2023 year-end report on the federal judiciary, as I promised. If you would like to listen to this report from the last year and the year before, you can find those readings in the show catalog by scrolling back to December 2022. And now, the Chief Justice's 2023 year-end report on the federal judiciary. Enjoy. Sometimes, the arrival of new technology can dramatically change work and life for the better. Just one century ago, for example, fewer than half of American homes had electricity. During the New Deal, the federal government set out to bring the light to homes across rural America. Representatives recruited farmers to join electricity cooperatives for $5 each. Then came teams of men to clear the brush, sink the poles, and wire homes to the still inert grid. As Robert Caro relates in The Path to Power, in some places the project took so long that many forgot about it, or were certain they had been duped. But eventually, there were stories like Evelyn Smith's to be told. One evening in November 1939, the Smiths were returning from Johnson City, where they had been attending a declamation contest, and as they neared their farmhouse, something was different. Oh my God, Evelyn's mother said, the house is on fire! but as they got closer, they saw the light wasn't fire. No, Mama, Evelyn said, the lights are on. But not every story of technological investment ends brightly, as Mark Twain discovered financing the Page Compositor, a typesetting device. The elaborate compositor consisted of 18,000 parts and came with a patent application longer than The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Twain was entranced by the invention, committing most of his fortune to bringing it to market. Unfortunately for Twain, the compositor was too complex to commercialize. Twain's company went bankrupt, and according to at least one account, both the attorney who drafted the patent application and one of the officials who examined it ended up dying in an insane asylum. Thirty-five years ago, the federal judiciary began to take tentative steps into the modern era of information technology. In 1989, the branch finally supplied personal computers to secretaries in all judges' chambers— and ensured that there was at least one personal computer to be shared by each judge's law clerks. New tools to make court information available to the public were rolling out, too. That same year, courts launched the Voice Case Information System, VCIS, with pilot tests in four bankruptcy courts. As it was explained to judges, by using a touch-tone telephone, Members of the public can connect to the court's computer voice synthesis device, 
which reads back case information to the caller from the court's database. A successor to VCIS still exists, by the way. If you would like to travel back in technological time and get current case information by phone, you can call 1-866-222-8029. Those of us who marveled at new, bulky, early personal computer systems in legal workplaces could hardly have anticipated today's ubiquitous conversations about whether and when computers might replace all sorts of professions, not least lawyers. Every year, I use the year-end report to speak to a major issue relevant to the whole federal court system. As 2023 draws to a close with breathless predictions about the future of artificial intelligence, some may wonder whether judges are about to become obsolete. I am sure we are not, but equally confident that technological changes will continue to transform our work. The legal profession is, in general, notoriously averse to change. For most of our nation's first century, lawyers and judges produced their work with quill pens, Still today, as has been the custom for more than two centuries, the clerk of the Supreme Court sets out white goose quill pens at council table before each oral argument. Symbols of tradition and timelessness, the quill pens go home as treasured souvenirs of each appearance before the highest court in the land. But the court has taken away the inkwells that once sat beside quill pens, recognizing that the pens now serve only a symbolic function. Like the rest of society, if not quite as quickly, the federal judiciary has adapted its practices to meet the opportunities and challenges of new technologies. The transition to more modern forms of document production began 150 years ago, with the appearance of the Scholes and Glidden typewriter, first manufactured in 1873 and famous shortly thereafter as the Remington. Most judges still wrote their drafts by hand, but the typewriter became an important tool in the dissemination of judicial opinions, both internally and to the outside world. In 1905, Justice David Brewer somewhat ungenerously referred to his law clerk as a typewriter, a fountain pen, used by the judge to facilitate his work. Until the invention of the dictaphone, law clerks of this vintage also had to take dictation, and at least one otherwise well-qualified law clerk lost his job due to lack of stenographic knowledge. The typewriter era lasted a century. On cue, 50 years ago, a device called the Altair appeared on the market. Many historians consider the Altair to have been the first personal computer. It marked a significant step in the transition from large stationary computers like the Sperry Univac housed in corporate and university buildings, 
to small mobile devices designed for personal use in offices and living rooms. While many professions eagerly anticipated advances in computing, the prevailing attitude within the judiciary was skepticism. As one contemporary author observed, the archaic courts know nothing of computers. That was largely true. In fact, the Supreme Court did not even have a photocopy machine until Chief Justice Warren E. Berger ordered one in 1969. Until that time, opinions and memoranda between the justices were typed, often on carbon paper, and then duplicated on a hot lead printing press that was not retired until the 1980s. The lower courts, guided by the newly created Federal Judicial Center, moved more quickly to bring computer technology into the federal judiciary, primarily through a system called Courtran. The development of Courtran implemented a 1967 congressional directive that the center study and determine ways in which automatic data processing and systems procedures may be applied to the administration of the courts of the United States. Courtran relied on the use of large computers in Washington, D.C. to store and manipulate data, which then could be transmitted and displayed on terminals in local courts across the country. Participation in the network was voluntary, and not all courts opted in. Computers came slowly but surely to the Supreme Court. In 1976, Justice Lewis Powell deployed a rented Wang computer in his chambers. Several other justices observed the satisfactory performance of this newfangled word processing machine and followed suit the next year. By 1981, the court adopted a state-of-the-art computer system called ATEX that revolutionized the production of opinions from start to finish, leading to the eventual retirement of the hot press. The 1980s saw a proliferation of personal computers in ordinary offices and households. By the early 1990s, most lawyers, law clerks, court administrators, and yes, even judges had them on their desks. Nevertheless, paper remained the rule of the day. Law clerks and law librarians of that era will recall directives to pull cases from hardbound case reporters. Legal writing instructors taught their students to check the continuing validity of precedents by sifting through bound volumes of a publication called Shepherds. Lawyers facing a deadline might skip this stage, proclaiming that the Lord is my shepherds. Once finalized, briefs and motions made their way from the office to the courthouse in the hands of couriers, carrying the number of hard copies required under local rules and individual judges' standing orders, plus one or two more to be stamped and returned to the paper file. Judicial staff still maintained docket entries in the same 
large handwritten diaries used by their predecessors a century earlier. And anyone looking to obtain a document from a case file had to travel to a clerk's office, request the file, inspect it, and then pay a cashier for any copies they wished to make. But change came fast. By the turn of the century, the paper world familiar to lawyers for centuries had largely given way to today's electronic regime. The public access to court electronic records, PACER system, which celebrated its 35th anniversary a few months ago, allowed lawyers, litigants, and the public to view the business of the courts from their office or library computer terminals. About a decade later, the digital revolution in the federal courts pressed forward with the unveiling of a system called Case Management slash Electronic Case Files, or CM slash ECF. CM ECF brought about a seismic shift in efficiency. Lawyers, law clerks, and judges could file pleadings and other court documents any time of day or night and from any location, rendering paper largely optional. New technology also entered law offices and courtrooms. Digitalization and Technology-Assisted Review, or TAR, help lawyers cope with the explosion of electronic discovery materials created and preserved in the digital age. Instead of pouring through boxes of papers in dusty warehouses, lawyers now perform document review from their offices, or even their dining room tables. Trials also look very different today than they did even a decade ago. Trial presentation software, real-time court reporting, accommodations for jurors, litigants, and spectators with disabilities, and many other applications have radically changed how lawyers present and jurors receive evidence in court. The COVID-19 pandemic ushered in yet another wave of rapid technological innovation. Courts at all levels of the judiciary immediately shifted from in-person to remote hearings in civil cases. With the adoption of the CARES Act, many criminal proceedings also shifted online. Key innovations first adopted as temporary have now become permanent features of the legal landscape, allowing litigants, lawyers, and courts to lock in efficiency gains that do not undercut other important legal or constitutional rights. And now we face the latest technological frontier, artificial intelligence, or AI. At its core, AI combines algorithms and enormous data sets to solve problems. Its many forms and applications include the facial recognition we use to unlock our smartphones and the voice recognition we use to direct our smart televisions. Law professors report with both awe and angst that AI apparently can earn B's on law school assignments and even pass the bar exam. 
legal research may soon be unimaginable without it. AI obviously has great potential to dramatically increase access to key information for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. But just as obviously, it risks invading privacy interests and dehumanizing the law. Proponents of AI tout its potential to increase access to justice, particularly for litigants with limited resources. Our court system has a monopoly on many forms of relief. If you want a discharge in bankruptcy, for example, you must see a federal judge. For those who cannot afford a lawyer, AI can help. It drives new, highly accessible tools that provide answers to basic questions, including where to find templates and court forms, how to fill them out, and where to bring them for presentation to the judge, all without leaving home. These tools have the welcome potential to smooth out any mismatch between available resources and urgent needs in our court system. But any use of AI requires caution and humility. One of AI's prominent applications made headlines this year for a shortcoming known as hallucination, which caused the lawyers using the application to submit briefs with citations to non-existent cases. Always a bad idea. Some legal scholars have raised concerns about whether entering confidential information into an AI tool might compromise later attempts to invoke legal privileges. In criminal cases, the use of AI in assessing flight risk, recidivism, and other largely discretionary decisions that involve predictions has generated concerns about due process, reliability, and potential bias. At least at present, studies show that a persistent public perception of a human-AI fairness gap, reflecting the view that human adjudications, for all of their flaws, are fairer than whatever the machine spits out. Many professional tennis tournaments, including the U.S. Open, have replaced line judges with optical technology to determine whether 130 mile per hour serves are in or out. These decisions involve precision to the millimeter, and there is no discretion the ball either did or did not hit the line. By contrast, legal determinations often involve gray areas that still require application of human judgment. Machines cannot fully replace key actors in court. Judges, for example, measure the sincerity of a defendant's allocution at sentencing. Nuance matters. Much can turn on a shaking hand, a quivering voice, a change of inflection, a bead of sweat, a moment's hesitation, a fleeting break in eye contact and most people still trust humans more than machines to perceive and draw the right inferences from these clues. Appellate judges, too, perform quintessentially human functions. 
Many appellate decisions turn on whether a lower court has abused its discretion, a standard that by its nature involves fact-specific gray areas. Others focus on open questions about how the law should develop in new areas. AI is based largely on existing information, which can inform but not make such decisions. Rule 1 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure directs the parties and the courts to seek the just, speedy, and inexpensive resolution of cases. Many AI applications indisputably assist the judicial system in advancing those goals. As AI evolves, courts will need to consider its proper uses in litigation. In the federal courts, several judicial conference committees, including those dealing with court administration and case management, cybersecurity, and the rules of practice and procedure, to name just a few, will be involved in that effort. I am glad that they will be. I predict that human judges will be around for a while. But with equal confidence, I predict that judicial work particularly at the trial level, will be significantly affected by AI. Those changes will involve not only how judges go about doing their job, but also how they understand the role that AI plays in the cases that come before them. Of course, the branch is composed of more than judges, and I would like to single out for praise this year the skilled and dedicated information systems professionals who support our courts. They are often unsung public servants performing indispensable work to keep the judicial branch running. Gone are the days when the quill pen alone was sufficient to maintain a docket. Courts could not do our work without technologists and cybersecurity experts in the Department of Technology Services at the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, at the circuit-wide level, and in individual courts. More parochially, judges, including me, have been known to call on help desk staff for urgent and essential assistance. Once again, I am privileged and honored to thank all the judges, court staff, and other judicial branch personnel throughout the nation for their outstanding service. Best wishes to all in the new year. John G. Roberts, Jr., Chief Justice of the United States, December 31, 2023. We've come to the end of the report and another year. I would personally like to wish each and every one of my fellow nerds the very best in 2024. Until next time, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.